the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, thanks for the introduction, Dr. Bill. That's Dr. Bill Meyer. And by the way, I've previously shared that Bill Meyer is the voice of Ping Golf. But I should have pointed out the obvious. He's also the voice of Insight for Living with our friend, Dr. Chuck Swindoll. I appreciate you joining us as we make our way through Advent and prepare for Christmas. Special thanks to the Salem Media Network for distributing this show. And Matt, on the other side of the glass, who's producing. Uh, Well, we're on a roll talking with pastors. Uh, I just mentioned Chuck Swindoll. Last week, we spoke with with Pastor Max Lucado. And this week, we're talking with Matina Lass. Now, for those of you who are listening here in Colorado Springs, you might know that name. Dr. Mateen was Minister of Adult Education at First Presbyterian Church here in town between 1995 and 2000. Uh, that's a wonderful congregation that's now led by Dr. Tim McConnell. And in fact, their Christmas concert is happening this weekend uh, that the show is airing. Uh, there might be some seats left. Just go down to the Pikes Peak Center um, and uh, maybe scalp some tickets. I don't know if many people do that for a church Christmas concert, but it is a fantastic uh, event with uh, Big Blue. Um, Matina Lass has a remarkable testimony and an extraordinary life story, and he has keen insight and perspective on many of the current clashes of modern civilization. That's because his father was a Muslim, and he was raised for more than a decade in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Now, following a variety of pastoring roles, Dr. Alas resettled here in Colorado Springs, where he serves on staff with Voices of the Truth Ministry, a phenomenal organization dedicated to teaching and training Christians about reaching Arabs for Christ. So, Mateen, it's a privilege to have you here in the studio. Thanks for joining. Paul, it's a great treat to be with you. Well, before we get started talking about your life, I have to ask you a question. Uh, I sat under your pastoring for a time back in the 90s. We all look forward to August when John Stevens, we like, we love John <laughs> sure, Stevens, of sure. course, but it was fun to have you and others preach. You always talked about uh, uh, the topic of the message and you would use your hairdresser, your barber, <laughs> as the foil of a bit. Who was that hairdresser and do you still go to that person? <laughs> well, uh, since I only preached occasionally, it was uh, possible for me to uh, use the hairdresser's story, but I I went to different uh, barbers because uh, once my cover was blown, it was tough to ask a question without getting a, a Christianized answer uh, once they discovered I was a pastor. So I, I had to keep my cover and I'd go to different hairstylists. <laughs> so that, that was sort of a very practical uh, tool you used in terms of trying to curate what people were thinking. Exactly. And so I used not not just hairstylists, but also uh, uh, people at restaurants. If I'd have a server, 
meet the server and uh, generally ask a question early on and and uh, invite the server to think about it. And then when they brought the food or towards the end of our meal to come back and share what they what they thought in terms of an answer to the question. Uh, that would help me to process my sermon material. Yeah. Now, at the time, you weren't preaching every week. You Correct. Were, you were yeah. preaching maybe three or four times a year, teaching, but not preaching. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you went on to pastoring full-time almost probably 40, 45 weeks a year. Right. Yeah, as a senior pastor, yeah. What was that? Was that, a, that must have been a huge change for you. It was a change, although I had pastored uh, a, a, sol- a solo in a small church in Arizona, and then uh, over in England, when I was working on my PhD over there, I pastored a church, uh, led the evening services on a weekly basis. So it wasn't unusual for me to be in that routine of of preaching yeah. uh, on a weekly basis. But when I came to First Press here in Colorado Springs, then I was back to maybe six times a year preaching. John Stevens had a reputation of being the benevolent dictator <laughs> as a pastor. How would you describe him? As I think a leader that's, of the congregation. I think that's a, a good description. He was uh, a genius in many ways. I, uh, he was able to to chart the the course of the culture and to see what issues were arising in the culture around the church prior to them cresting. And then he was able to help devise ministries or programs that would help meet people's needs: divorce recovery workshop, grief. Uh, growing through grief workshop and uh, other types of ministries. Uh, so John had a great grasp of uh, of culture and how the church could minister effectively to the you know rising tides that were happening around us. Uh, he was a, a bit of uh, a you uh, said benevolent dictator. He he was a detail person. So uh, even when you worked on a project, uh, he he wanted to make sure that. All the details were covered the way he envisioned that. So, yeah, he uh, tells the story of coming back into the church, I guess, after his year away and seeing a picture that was crooked. And he was just about to straighten it out. And he said, Nope, that's not my job anymore. And he, he said he forced himself to walk away. <laughs> I think that's a nice encapsulation of uh, how is he doing for the for locally? I know he's been struggling with his health. He's now in his 80s. What can you tell us? Well, he is struggling health-wise. Uh, he's had uh, Parkinson's, and um, he, he's now in a uh, a uh, what do you call it, a assisted living situation, and um, his he's having some memory issues and all. But there are times when he's completely lucid, and and um, uh, he still has a great heart yeah. for the it, Lord and for ministry. Amazing! It would be impossible to overstate the impact that he had on the the city of Absolutely. Colorado Springs and on thousands of people through the years, a 34 year ministry yeah, absolutely. Uh, is one to honor and one to revere. And, and we, we honor his memory. Uh, although he's still with us, yeah. but uh, it's wonderful to, to get an update from someone who knows him. So Mateen, let's, let's talk about your upbringing, a very unique one. You, right. Your parents were uh, met at the university of Wisconsin. That's correct. My father had been born and raised in Syria, in the Golan Heights area, and um, proceeded with his education. Uh, He was a Sunni Muslim and uh, devout in his younger years, finished his undergraduate degree at the University of Syria in Damascus, and then came across on a special program that was uh, hosted by the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, My mom was born and raised as a Roman Catholic in Madison. We're in Wisconsin. 
We met at the university, fell in love, got married, uh, I'm not sure the year, 1950 or 51. And um, my older brother was born in 1953, and I was born in 1955. And uh, at that point, my dad was uh, uh, working in New Haven. He was angling to start a Ph.D. program in international relations. But when I came along, he realized he needed steady income. And uh, so he hooked on with Aramco Oil Company, whose stateside headquarters at that point were in New York City. Hmm. And so as a young family, we moved to New York City. And we're there until 1964. So you have some pretty significant memories of growing up in New York City. Mm-hmm. Did you I live in Manhattan or one of the we lived, suburbs? We lived in uh, Queens in Forest Hills oh, in an okay. apartment. I still remember the address. You know, it was drilled into you as a kid. Yeah, kind of near the tennis center. Yeah, not too far. We could I could uh, ride my bike there into the uh, uh, see the uh, world. It was a World's, World's Fair. World's Fair over near Chase Stadium. 1960, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the World's Fair was there in 1964. Four, yeah. So I remember we left for Arabia in, 19, in January of 64. So before it, it opened, it was, you know, it was open for the local public, I guess. And I remember riding my bike over there with a with a friend and just started gawking at all of the exhibits. So what's <laughs> it like to move from New York City to Saudi Arabia? Well, when you're a kid, it's very romanticized. I mean, my older brother and I uh, dreamed about riding camels to school and <laughs> and all. And, of course, that wasn't the case. Uh, but it, it was, for us, it was a, a wonderful adventure moving over there and getting immersed in a completely different culture. Yeah, in a very Muslim culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Saudi Arabia is a very conservative, Wahhabi, Sunni Islamic uh, country. Um, by the time we moved over there, my father had had really moved away from the practice of Islam. He still referred to himself as a Muslim and what we would probably call a cultural Muslim. Um, so it it was very uh, helpful f- for him in his work. He he ended up as he climbed through the corporate ladder, becoming the senior vice president of Aramco for government affairs, and so he worked with Saudi officials, and so. Uh, his he presented himself as a Muslim working with Muslims, and of course that then later became problematic when I became a Christian. Oh, uh, I can imagine. So your your mom is not Muslim, but uh, life in the alas home was was sort of what I mean. What did you guys when it came to matters of faith? Was there conversations about it, or was it sort of just left unsaid? Yeah, it was left unsaid. We we were a secular family. My parents did say to us as we were in our teen years that, uh, you know, if we were exploring matters of faith, that uh, they would respect whatever decision we came to, uh, but they weren't going to going to try to tip the scale in one direction or another. And none of my siblings seemed all that interested in religious or philosophical discussions, but for some reason— I did starting around age thirteen. So, what triggered that? I mean, to grow up in a in a secular home without any conversation? Was there somebody or something or something you read or something you saw? What do you attribute that uh, that search to? Well, I would say now in retrospect, the Holy Spirit. But at the time, of course, I had no idea what a, what the Holy Spirit uh, was or who He is. Uh, so I I just started to develop uh, two. Two key questions. One was, and I thought they were separate questions. One was on uh, the theme of love and whether it was possible 
to uh, love someone else without strings attached? Or is love always the quid pro quo kind of a thing? And so I was, I started reading some books uh, on love, uh, Eric Fromm's The Art of Loving and so on, and uh, sort of developed this very idealistic uh, sense of uh, wanting to be able to love people from the heart without asking anything in return. But that became problematic for me because I realized <laughs> the more I looked inside myself, uh, I didn't seem to have that capacity. Uh, so that was one question, the quest for love. And the other question then was uh, was more metaphysical. Is there someone or something at the center of the universe that I have to interact with or respond to? And I had uh, no guidance, no way of understanding that. Um, but I became, uh, I mean, uh, I, I knew not nearly as much as I know now, but quite a bit about uh, Islam, the practice of Islam, uh, as I saw through my f- friends and uh, and extended family members, m- members from my father's side of the family, um, so I knew the concept of God and and uh, the idea of uh, having duty towards God required prayers and so on. But the God of Islam seemed to me to be so remote and uh, transcendent, distant, and uh, the practice of Islam, at least the Wahhabi Islam I saw, was so austere that it really did not appeal to me. Uh, I was hoping that if there was a God, there'd, it, there'd be some kind of relational possibilities. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see that within Islam. We're, I'm talking with Dr. Matina Lass. He is um, author of uh, terrific books, Understanding the Quran, A Quick Christian Guide to the Muslim Holy Book, another one, The Teachings of Jesus and Muhammad. And he's uh, also uh, on staff at Voice of the Truth, which is a local ministry an outreach to um, the Arab world. Um, let's do a little level setting. How many forms of Islam are there? How many different well, sects of it? <laughs> well, it, it's hard to say. I mean, it's be sort of like asking the question about Christianity as well. There are two major divisions within Islam, the Sunni and the Shiite. Uh, the Sunni are lumped together as maybe 85 to 90% of the Muslim world. And the Shiites, the, uh, pretty much the remainder, with a few tiny splinter groups, uh, and then uh, they're they're sort of considered the the Orthodox, although each one does not consider the other to be part of Orthodoxy. Uh, but then there's also a, a spiritual mystical movement within Islam that bridges Sunnis and Shiites. Uh, that's uh, known as the Sufi order or Sufi mystics, uh, and they're like. Uh, mystics pretty much in any religion. They they don't follow rules very much. Their goal is to try to commune uh, with the divine in whatever way they can. Uh, so so th- those are the three terms that you would hear most often, Sunni, Shiite, and uh, Sufi. Yeah, okay. So when you're over there as a young boy, uh, did you get any inkling of the violent a- aspect of the religion that is obviously topic of conversation number one in America, given nine eleven and all of that, or was that just not something that was on your radar? It wasn't on my radar at all, and I think part of the reason for that is that uh, jihad isn't talked about very much if if you're living in the heart of Islamic society, because uh, the enemies that are to be fought against are. Or on the borders or periphery of uh, of the religion of the uh, community, so in the heart of Saudi Arabia, there wasn't much talk about 
the responsibility of jihad. At least I I never heard it. I mean, okay. if, if you were being taught in school, in a typical Muslim school, Saudi school, uh, that would be part of your curriculum because you would know that that's a, an essential principle within Islam. How were you received as a mixed race child over there? That's a great question. Uh, I'd I'd say pretty well because there were uh, there was so so much interaction in our little oil company community between uh, the Muslim world or the the Saudi Muslims uh, as as well as Muslims from other Arab countries who were working uh, for Aramco Oil Company. Uh, so I I was not uh, I was not all that unusual a breed to have a Muslim. Syrian Muslim father and uh, an American non-Muslim mother. Yeah. Okay. So when you're you're in your teens, I know you kind of dabbled in Eastern mysticism a little bit. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with that, other than I grew up in New York, and we used to there used to be a running group in New York that always used to kind of laud the Maharishi Mahayogi. Oh yes. <laughs> and uh, I think he may have been a runner or something huh. about that. But um, did that speak to you as a youngster in search of something? Yes. As since I was now being prompted internally by this search, and I turned away from Islam, and Judaism and Christianity were not really uh, viable options for me to pursue because of my family setting with my dad being a Muslim, uh, I turned towards Eastern mysticism. I met a couple that had been passing through. They were entertainers, uh, and they they had a, a little stint uh, at Ramco entertaining the, the oil company community singers from the 1960s. And, uh, and they were practitioners of uh, a certain kind of uh, organization group called uh, uh, Self, the Self-Realization Fellowship, uh, which was founded by uh, an Eastern yogi named Paramahansa Yogananda. And I somehow I got connected with them, and I was fascinated by their their own story, their testimony of what they'd found within this organization. And they gave me a copy of of the autobiography of this guru, called Autobiography of a Yogi, by Paramahansa Yogananda. And I read that, and I was I was taken. I was just fascinated with his story and what he was trying to accomplish. And his goal was to uh, to try to bridge Eastern and Western philosophy and practices and and come up with some kind of a hybrid in fact their symbol was a was a cross with a lotus at the center of it uh so i got connected with that organization when i ended up then going away for boarding school 10th grade coming back to the united states uh, i linked up with this self-realization fellowship and and began taking correspondence courses from them and so got involved in in these basic practices of of uh, yoga and then the philosophical framework behind yoga that led me after a few years more deeply into what's known as classical yoga and i began practicing that so from about age 14 on until i met christ at age 20 i was very very deeply involved in eastern mysticism i ended up at age 19 uh culminating my studies going over to India from Arabia uh, and uh, studying for uh, three weeks or so at an ashram in the outskirts of Bombay under this aged guru, Brahmin caste guy in his 90s, 
who was the guru of the fellow that I'd been studying classical uh, yoga under. What is it about that um, that philosophy that seems to draw Hollywood types and you know you you see it pop up all the time in, in terms of what people are quote believing. Yeah. What what is it that makes that so attractive? Well, everyone's unique, uh, so it's impossible to say for sure. But I think one of the factors is that uh, uh, a, a lot of people are looking for something uh, that's a uh, an alternative to or rejection of the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's sort of like been here, been there, done that, and I'm looking for something else. Of course, they never really. Uh, they didn't really dive deeply into the Christian faith, but they think I was raised in this kind of a setting. And, you know, Eastern thought uh, is new, fresh, attractive. I used to joke that, it, you know, that, that Eastern thought that people are so eager to pursue uh, that now is ta- talked about or has been talked about as a new age movement. It's really just old age with a new wrapper on it. It's, uh, it's something that's been around for uh, thousands of years, hmm. but it seems it's appealing because it's so different from yeah. Western culture. You mentioned um, yoga, and you know, obviously, there's kind of a big movement in the United States. Should Christians be concerned about the practice of yoga? Well, I think when most people uh, experience with yoga is uh, is uh, is known as bhakti yoga, which is more uh, the poses and the exercises, the stretching of the body, and uh, and all of those things. Uh, are uh, are good physically for the body, um, so I I don't have any problem with that. the The problem is when instructors or individuals who are interested uh, go more deeply into yoga and they start to ask the the questions about the world uh, meaning, the the background setting of yoga, how these things came into practice, uh, what what's the uh, the mindset behind the practice of yoga. Uh, or the, the philosophical foundations of Hinduism, and uh, yoga provides that. So it provides a whole uh, a whole worldview. Mm. And if you buy into that, then of course Christians should, would should find that dangerous, you know, because because the suppositions, the presuppositions behind uh, an Eastern view of life are completely at odds with a Christian worldview. Yeah. Good things can be always be corrupted and, yeah. and taken in the wrong direction. Um, before we go to the break. So you're, you're, you're at a boarding school and back in the United States, you decided to go to Stanford, uh, Ivy league type school. Um, what was your thought on that? How did you choose that school? <laughs> well, uh, I, uh, my boarding school had been in New Hampshire uh, so I left Arabia at age 15, a uh, very warm climate, and go to New Hampshire. And the first winter there was, for me, was brutal. And uh, three years there, it was, uh, it was kind of climatically a, a uh, dismal scene for me because I never saw the summers in New Hampshire. I just saw fall, winter, and first part of spring, which was late in coming, yeah. and then off to Arabia for the summer. Uh, so uh, I, I was not too keen on any of the Ivy League schools, the Eastern Seaboard. Or too cold. Too cold, too wet, too dreary. <laughs> and my older brother had gone out, and uh, by two years older than I, he, he had gone to Stanford. So he was still there as a, as a junior when I came as a freshman. 
but my senior year in high school, I went out to just to look at the schools and uh, and Stanford was uh, sort of top of the list. I applied also to Yale, Dartmouth, just as backup schools, uh, University of Wisconsin and uh, Northwestern. And then I applied also to uh, uh, UCSB, Santa Barbara. And, uh, you know, I was, when I went out, I was taken by the the beauty of the campuses and also that uh, the, the girls were uh, uh, wearing very skimpy outfits and much more attractive to me than <laughs> than uh, being, you know, under lead and cloudy skies at Yale or something like yeah, that. So, yeah. So when Stanford accepted me, there was no, no, I was no looking back for me. Well, well when we come back, <laughs> I want to talk to you about your study of the Gospels. And that was sort of, I think, the turning point for you where you determined this is true and this is how, this yes. is what I'm going to stake my claim on. Um, we're talking with uh, Matina Lass. He's the author of Understanding the Quran and several other titles. He's with um, a local Colorado Springs, actually not a local ministry. It's a ministry that uh, it really ministers to the world, Voice of the Truth. I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Appreciate you tuning in. And right back after the break, we're going to talk about the turning point that kind of led to everything else and really leads us to this one uh, afternoon today where we're talking here in Colorado Springs. So thanks for listening, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Paul Batura. You're listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. In studio today is Mateen Lass, and he is a former pastor, probably always a pastor, never always a pastor at heart, but he is with the ministry Voice of the Truth. He's an author, and with his given his background, he can speak uniquely to the clashes of civilization today. He has a fantastic book called Understanding the Quran and then The Teachings of Jesus and Muhammad. And he has a new book that he's finishing up. We'll talk about that. But Mateen, when we were last uh, before the break, I wanted to ask you about kind of the turning point for you, which was the study of the Gospels. Um, tell us about that. And uh, then a practical question, I guess, is if someone's listening who was in your shoes, would you recommend that they do the same thing? <laughs> okay, absolutely. Well, uh, I was in a relationship with a, a, a Christian girl, and uh, I, w- I was, at the time, I would categorize myself as an agnostic tending towards atheism, still practicing Eastern mystical practices. And uh, she had said to me, we could never get too serious because I wasn't a Christian, and she was, and she couldn't marry a non-Christian. And I said to her, well, there's there's no real integrity in changing what you believe about the universe just because you want to be with somebody. So... We had thought we would date through the summer and then part ways at the end of the summer in Arabia. And uh, that's what happened. And she went back to her school in Arkansas, Washtenaw Baptist University, Arkadelphia, Arkansas. And I had a, almost a month before I was going back to Stanford. Um, and so I got uh, heartsick and uh, not seeing her and decided that I would leave Arabia early. And I'd track my way across the U.S. and stop and see her on my way back to Stanford, which I did. And I ended up spending almost three weeks uh, there at uh, Washtenaw Baptist University with her. And I still had those same two questions. Uh, is it possible to love without strings attached? And is there someone or something at the center of the universe? And what I saw in the Christian community at this Baptist college was the kind of love that I knew in my heart, I knew instinctively was the way you're supposed to love people. It was very uh, giving, thinking about others not self-centered. And and when I would see people, 
uh, doing something kind for someone else. Uh, and I, and I, as I'd gotten to know some of those people, I would go to them and say, I saw this and I was wondering, uh, what moved you to do that? Uh, and they would talk about Jesus in their hearts. And I'd say, I'm, I'm not interested in the religious stuff. I just want to know where you get the power to love people like that. Mm. And they, they kept talking about Jesus. So, uh, so, uh, my, my first movement towards considering the Christian faith seriously was, uh, based on my experience of seeing the love of Christ actually lived out by Christians towards one another and towards me. Uh, and so I said, well, you know, how do I learn more about this Jesus? And of course the answer was, well, I read the Bible. And I said, okay, well, I never read the Bible, but I have seen Bibles and I know they're pretty thick books. So <laughs> can you give me a, a shorthand uh, uh, clue as to where to go? And they said, oh, well, uh, focus on the New Testament. So I said, okay, New Testament, I figured that came after the old but I saw that was still fairly significant uh, commitment to try to read that whole thing. So I said, well, anything more specific? And somebody said, yeah, re- read the Gospels. Just read the Gospels. I said, great. Okay. So what are Gospels? So a friend gave me his Bible. It was a New American Standard Bible. So all the these and thous and stuff, which I was not schooled in. Uh, and he opened it up to the Gospel of Matthew. He said, start here and read till you get to the end of a book called John. And you'll have read the gospel, four gospels. So I said, okay, I can do that. So I sat down and started to read. Uh, now, I, I was just 20 at that time, and uh, but I was pretty well schooled in the religions of the world other than Christianity and Judaism because of my background in Islam and then in Eastern mysticism. And, and I was also a philosophy major at Stanford. So I'd studied both in high school and college Eastern philosophers, but I was now studying also the Western philosophers, pre-Socratic, uh, uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and and then the uh, uh, early uh, uh, f- the philosophers of the Middle Dark Ages, Middle Ages, and and some of the Enlightenment philosophers. And I was uh, by no means an expert, but I dabbled enough to have a sense of uh, what they taught and how they themselves uh, lived out their lives. Uh, so as I sat down with the Gospels and started to read about Jesus, I, I was just uh, entranced, transfixed mm. by the person of Jesus. He seemed to have life wired. He never had to say in answer to a question, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this and Rabbi so-and-so said that, and I follow this rabbi. He just spoke plainly and said, this is the way it is. And uh, Now, did you have an impression of Jesus from your— uh, Muslim days, because they they believe in Jesus, they just don't believe he's the Son of God, of course, right? Right, right. Uh, what was your impression of him in contrast to what you grew up reading and living around? Well, uh, the the Muslim world doesn't tend to talk very much about uh, Jesus. I mean, their their name for Jesus is Isa from the Quran, um, and they they see uh, Isa as as a as one of the great greatest prophets, but second, of course, to Muhammad, and uh, but in this, in the lineage of the prophets, and in Islam, all the prophets uh, basically said the same thing. Their message was the same. So uh, Jesus doesn't stand out uh, other than there are some unique things the Quran says about him, uh, which which raise, raise a lot of questions in the minds of Muslims uh, who are starting to seek for something beyond Islam because they realize that what the Quran says about uh, Isa— uh, it doesn't say about any other any of the other prophets, mm. but I didn't know much about that. I just knew that Jesus was one of the prophets, and 
the Quran does speak of the uh, of the virgin birth, and so there's there's a nativity. Uh, there's a couple of passages that are nativity passages in the Quran, um, but I would say I didn't know much about Jesus from either from Islam or from uh, American culture, other than the Christmas story, you know, the, mm-hmm. uh, with all the embellishments. So uh, when I sat down and started to read, I felt I felt kind of like a fly on the wall observing all of these events taking place uh, with Jesus healing people. Uh, answering questions for people, uh, doing miracles, uh, nature miracles, calming the seas, feeding the five thousand, and uh, uh, but most of all, it was the the wisdom uh, with which he spoke. He just seemed to know how life was supposed to go, how human beings were supposed to live, and of course, not doing a very good job of it. Uh, and so, I was most attracted to uh, the person of Jesus that that the gospels portrayed uh his his death uh to me was something that was sad and tragic but i didn't think of it at the time in terms of uh, an atoning sacrifice uh but when i got to the the ends of the gospels and each of them uh giving an account of the resurrection uh i was uh i, I was uh moved by that to ask the question, is it possible that Jesus uh, is still alive? Because if the resurrection happened, then he's beyond death, beyond uh, the limits of space and time. And when I got to the end of the Gospel of John, I remember thinking to myself, uh, Mateen, you've never come across anyone who who can hold a candle to this Jesus of the Gospels. Uh, I thought, if he were alive today, I would go try to find him and ask him if he would take me as a student. I was still thinking in terms of yeah. guru and uh, students. But this is a remarkable statement coming from someone who, of course, grew up in Saudi Arabia, but who is well-versed in the classics, who is well-read. I mean, you're not some country bumpkin come to town. I mean, mm-hmm. this is you've been well-educated, well-versed, and yet here you are overwhelmed by the reality of what you just read yeah i, I was i was uh com- completely enamored with with this jesus and so i thought uh that's the the big question is the question of the resurrection uh did it really happen because i thought if it happened uh i, I could uh speak to jesus he, he may not not answer me but uh, i was really taken with the story of of thomas uh, uh when when jesus first appeared to the disciples after uh, the resurrection, that first Easter night, and Thomas wasn't with them. Uh, and uh, he comes in later after Jesus has left, and the other disciples, of course, are completely overjoyed and bouncing off the walls. And they say to Thomas, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas's response is, don't, don't get me going. Don't try to convince me uh, this is too big a deal. I've already been uh, devastated by his death unless I can— perform these tests, put my finger in the nail prints in his hands and put my hand in his side that was pierced. I won't, I won't believe. I just can't do that. Uh, and it, it's an amazing uh, story, wonderful to unpack about the church itself. You know, the first community of Christians, the disciples who are overjoyed, but they're willing to put up with Thomas, who's kind of like Eeyore uh, in their midst. Mm-hmm. You know, like they could be saying to him, Hey, don't, don't throw a blanket over a wet blanket on our party. 
But they didn't. They kept Thomas in their midst. And Thomas, to his credit, didn't say, uh, you guys are, are just too obnoxious. I can't stay around you. I've got to go by my, off by myself. Did you relate to Thomas personally? Uh, well, I related in, in this particular sense that when Jesus appeared the next uh, Sunday night to them and said, peace be with you, uh, Thomas was there that time, and Jesus turned to him and said, okay, Thomas, perform your tests. And I was so uh, I was bemused by that because I thought, well, how would, how would Jesus have known? He'd already left when uh, Thomas had come back and had made his statement. So how did Jesus know what Thomas's tests were? And it made me realize, well, uh, Jesus had left visibly, but apparently was still present. Mm. And that's what gave me hope to say, well, if if the resurrection really happened, then I could ask Jesus if he would take me as a student. No, and nothing might happen, but at least I wouldn't feel like I was just talking to the to the ceiling or yeah. to the wall or something like that. The, vo- the voice you're hearing is Dr. Mateen Alas. He's a... Uh, with the Voice of the Truth ministry here in Colorado Springs, former pastor, local pastor here in the Springs as well, author of several books. Um, we're talking about his conversion story. So you accept the you you take the big leap. I took the leap. I yeah, uh, September fifteenth of nineteen seventy five, and uh, and my life just changed radically from that point on. I immediately got involved in the. Uh, in the church commu- Christian community, got back to Stanford. Uh, uh, you know how this goes, Paul. You're, when you're so, uh, when you've got tunnel vision, pursuing one thing, for, which for me was Eastern thought, uh, you you don't see other th- uh, things around you. They they don't register for you. So I got back to Stanford, and I I was thinking, racking my brains as I was on my way back. Uh, are there any Christians at Stanford? <laughs> you know. And I remember one uh, gal in my freshman dorm who had put up a, a notice on the bulletin board at, at the dorm saying that uh, she was going to be hosting a Bible study in, in her dorm room. And I remembered her name, and I thought, oh, her name's Sandy. I thought, uh, when I get back to Stanford, I've got to track down Sandy and see if there are any other Christians at Stanford. And uh, as uh, the Holy Spirit uh, uh, arranges things, I was— I was there in the student union my first day back looking for my my best friend uh, who lived in Japan. His dad worked for the State Department. And uh, so I was looking to reconnect with him in a noisy place, bowling alleys and pinball machines and just lots of people all over. And I'm looking for my friend. I don't see him. And I turn around to leave and I actually bump into somebody and I turn to say sorry. And it's this girl, Sandy. Mm. <laughs> I grabbed her shoulders. I said, Sandy, are you a Christian? And she looked at me with big eyes, and she said, well, yes, I'm a Christian. I said, oh, good, I've just become a Christian. And I'm wondering, are there any other Christians at Stanford? And she laughed and said, oh, yeah, a big community. So the Lord got me involved in, in, in student groups and in the Christian community. I started going to there were two major churches that, that were uh, well-liked and well-attended by students at, at, from Stanford. One was Menlo Park Presbyterian, the other was Peninsula Bible Church. And so I started, I would go with, I didn't know my way around these places. So I'd go wherever a car was going that uh, had an open spot. And, uh, but over time I started to gravitate towards uh, the college group at uh, Menlo Park Presbyterian Church. And uh, anyway, got, got anchored in. Uh, so that, that was a ble- great blessing. Yeah. So but, we're, we're in the Advent season. 
and Christmas season is always a wonderful time to talk faith and to, and you're going to be at parties and you're going to be at family gatherings. So if, if I'm engaging with someone who, you know, maybe they're into Eastern mysticism, maybe they're Muslim, maybe they don't believe anything. Maybe they don't know what they believe uh, as a pastor. What's the best, you know, there's not a formula, but like, what do you recommend to people? If you're a Christian and you're wanting to witness to someone, how do you approach that? Well, as you said, there's no one size fits all. Um, but I would try to to get people to read the Gospels, which for me were so formative. Because I find that most people who are not believers uh, have have never really given a fair look at the, the claims of Christ. They've, they, they've never learned much about who he is. They just uh, know that he's the chief figure of the Christian faith. Uh, so I, I would get people to uh, to read the scriptures. Uh, I had a, a pastor friend uh, who, uh, who used to start what he called investigative Bible studies, Earl Palmer. Uh, this is his name, Presbyterian pastor of yore. From Berkeley, right? Berkeley, first press Berkeley, yeah. And then uh, up in uh, Seattle, also first press in Seattle. Uh, and he he would uh, start these studies and maybe just make them four weeks or eight weeks and invite people. He'd say, I want you to come, and uh, I'm, I'm not going to preach to you. Uh, there, there are no stipulations. All I ask is that, that you read the text, trying to discern what the text is actually trying to say for itself. You don't have to agree with it, but let's look at it and investigate. And uh, he found that very helpful, and I found that very helpful with people as well to in, invite them, especially you know in the Christmas season. Uh, what's what's this all about? Uh, for for me, the Christmas season as a pastor has become a, a wonderful time. But early on, as a, a Christian, for me it was difficult because my first Christmas I went back home to Arabia, and that's when I told my dad I'd become a follower of Christ, and and he just hit the roof. I mean, he just exploded at me and said that was not permissible and tried to get me to uh, recant my faith and use some very uh, pressure-filled arguments to uh, uh, to try to dissuade me from following Christ. And I, st- I can still remember four of them very clearly, uh, which were all— uh, which, it was so surprising to me and, and to the rest of the family because we'd never seen my dad so— Exercised, because uh, he's kind this, of a secular guy. Yeah, a secular guy. And when I was pursuing Eastern mysticism, he actually helped me fund my trip over to India. He thought, "Oh, okay, he's expanding his horizons, learning more." But when I told him to become a Christian, that uh, it was just not permissible. And a, a lot of that, I think, has to do with with the uh, emotional baggage of his own youth and, and in Islam. It's it's generally okay for you as a Muslim to have friends who may be Christian or Druze or something, but it's not permissible for someone within the family to jump over the religious line to move to another faith. That's that's something that brings great shame upon the family, and I, I think that's what motivated him. He I mean, he told me outright, yeah, you've you've stabbed me in the back, you've. You've dishonored the family. You've brought shame upon us. Uh, you maybe even 
put family members in danger if they find out. Uh, so, so he told me uh, that that I I could not be a Christian when I told him that I was not changing, which was a a, a big thing culturally as well to do because a, you know a son never goes against the father's wishes in the Middle Eastern culture. Um, he he did one of the four things that he told me would happen. He disowned me, kicked me out of the family, which didn't last forever, but it lasted about 15 years, 14 mm. years. Wow. So, and how did your mom respond? My mom was uh, shell-shocked by the whole thing. Uh, and my dad was a, a quiet man, but but still a man with a, a lot of persona and uh, power, quiet power. So my mom was kind of under his thumb, and so she was not willing to uh, to stick up for me, uh, but we we couldn't figure out exactly why this all so suddenly happened. I mean, he told me that this girl that I was dating was, uh, uh, and he knew her and her family that they were Christians. He said, if the Saudi officials find out, uh, they'll go and and they'll investigate. And they'll probably arrest the man for proselytizing, throw him in prison, and that's a pretty big deal in Arabia. And he told me if I felt the same way at following Jesus when summer came around, that I wouldn't be welcome under his roof, which meant I wouldn't be welcome. I couldn't get back into Arabia. At that point, you couldn't get a, a visitor's visa. Um, the third thing he told me was that that uh, he would have to resign his job if it became news, if the Saudi authorities found out that I'd become a Christian because he said, I, I would lose all the respect of the Saudi officials I work with as a Muslim, that I couldn't raise my own son correctly. So he said, I'd be completely ineffective and have to resign. And then for, the fourth thing he said to me is, uh, he said, it doesn't matter what you say about yourself. According to Sharia, Islamic law in Saudi Arabia, you are a Muslim because son of a Muslim is automatically a Muslim by law. So if they got wind of, of your statements about being a Christian, they picked you up for questioning, what would you say? I said, well, I understand it's a sensitive matter and I'd be cautious in how I answered. He said, well, what if they ask you straight out, are you a Christian? I said, well, I have to, I'd say yes. I, I, I can't uh, avoid telling that fact. And I can still picture in my mind, he threw his hands up in the air and said, well, then from your own lips, you would be convicting yourself of the crime of apostasy in, in Islam. He said, you know what the penalty for that is in, uh, here in Arabia? I said, well, I've got a guess. He said, it's, it's death by beheading. So he said, you, you should consider that. So all these things, I'm, you know, I, this Christmas season, I'd been a believer for about three months at that point. But the Holy Spirit was so gracious. I knew that there are many in the student Christian community and the adult Christian community there in, in Arabia as well who knew what was going on and were praying for me. So I felt just sort of strangely... Uh, at peace in this whole situation. But it was still very emotional. I, I remember going to the airport back in the day when they didn't have any kind of TSA stuff. And, you know, you, you with your friends could walk all, or family could walk just to the gate. Uh, and, For sure, yeah. And uh, so my parents took me to the airport and walked me to the gate. And, and as I said goodbye, I had tears coming down my eyes. I hugged my mom. 
and she hugged me back. I hugged my dad, and he sort of hugged me somewhat. Uh, but I, I, I thought actually that that was the last time I was ever going to see them because of what my dad had said. Mm. And that didn't turn out to be the case, but, but it, it was definitely a very emotional Times. Well, Dr. Mateen, this has been a terrific week. There's so much more ground to cover. We'll have to have you back to talk more about your books and about the ministry. But where can people follow you, support the ministry, get a hold of you? Well, thank you for saying that. I, I, I have a blog site, just uh, mateenalas.wordpress.com. And I've been working on a, a book, so I haven't been doing a lot of blogging. But I'll be picking that up again once this book project is complete. Uh, so people can read past blogs there and, and can, can connect them with me if they want, uh, you know, just by leaving comments. Um, or they can uh, contact Voice of the Truth if they if they want to help support our ministry um, and uh, either call our, our uh, phone number uh, or they can go to our website, which is vopg.com. VOPG stands for Voice of Preaching the Gospel, which is how we're known in the Arabic world. Um, and uh, they'll come to a, the website. The website is basically in Arabic, but if they want to donate, there's a uh, a, a button on the, the main page, a green button they can click on that says, says I don't know, donate here or something like that. So And that takes, takes you to a, a simple form you can fill out or connect with. So anyway, well, no, that's that. no, that's great, and and I think it's wonderful for people to understand who's behind. Uh, I know you're one of several; you're not the only person. But for people to know the story and to know the heart that's behind that ministry and behind your, um, you know, passion for mm-hmm. sharing the gospel, mm-hmm. that is wonderful. And uh, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Paul. It's great to be with you. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.